Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Thank you to everybody who has clicked the donate button. And if you haven't, maybe you might do it this time. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube or our website, click the share button uh, and subscribe and all of that. And be back in a second with Michael Hudson. U.S. household debt climbed to a record high of $14.6 trillion at the end of 2020 as mortgage debt surpassed $10 trillion for the first time. Now, the GDP of the United States is only around $21 trillion. Americans owe over $1.71 trillion in student loan debt spread out among 44.7 million borrowers. That's about $739 billion more than the total U.S. credit card debt. While defaults and payments have been halted due to the pandemic, I'm talking now again about student debt, there's no plan yet for forgiving such debt in spite of promises from Biden and many others in the Democratic Party. Biden said during a CNN town hall that he would not forgive $50,000 through executive action as urged by Senator Schumer and Warren, he, Biden said, I'm prepared to write off the $10,000 debt, but not the $50,000 because I don't think I have the authority to do it. Well, a group of 17 state attorneys general called on Biden to forgive $50,000 in student debt loans per borrower through executive action, asserting he does have the authority to do so under the Higher Education Act. On the other hand, Beginning in mid-March 2020, the Federal Reserve initiated an aggressive policy of quantitative easing, which included the purchase of corporate bonds. Billions of dollars of corporate debt has been purchased by the Fed, mostly from major companies, including Apple, AT&T, General Electric, Ford, Comcast, Microsoft, and around 90 others. Companies that probably didn't even need their debt purchased. So the role of the state and forgiving debt is quite okay, as long as it's a major corporation and not a student. Okay, I'll admit the Fed policy is a little more complicated than I outlined, but the principle is clear. It's not considered a systemic risk for corporations and banks to rely on the government to bail them out of debt, but it is a danger to the system for government to forgive family and student debt. Of course, it goes further than that. The system requires high levels of debt amongst the population for corporations and banks to continue to rake in massive profits and engorge the fortunes of the billionaire class. Now joining us to talk about debt is Michael Hudson. Michael's an economist, professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. He's also a former Wall Street analyst, political consultant, a commentator, and journalist. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. Good to be here. Uh, regarding your lead-in, uh, Sheila Baer, the uh, head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal recently saying, the problem with the Federal Reserve is it's buying junk bonds. It's buying the bonds, as she put it, of zombie corporations that can't pay their debts. Uh, and she's criticizing them. Uh, she pointed out that the entire financial system rests on debt because uh, debt is the collateral for uh, for the banks. Uh, the bank's assets 
are the debts of the people it's uh, lent it to. So the Fed policy is aimed uh, ever since 2008 uh, by somehow keeping uh, the economy's ability to pay its largest uh, massive debts, real estate debts, uh, intact by lowering interest rates to support the mortgage market. And if you support mortgage lending, then uh, even if individual homeowners can't pay their debts, they can at least sell them to somebody uh, or a, a company, a renting company that uh, uh, can afford uh, to pay. So the whole financial system is uh, an inverted, is a pyramid resting on uh, on these debts. Let me just emphasize something you just said, because uh, you kind of corrected me on something correctly, uh, that the fact that the uh, these major corporations like Apple and all that uh, got their bonds and debt bought was a piece of it. But you're right. The, the other piece, of, which actually developed maybe a little further after they started this program, is they're now really buying tons of debt where the companies are practically insolvent and never could pay off this debt, as you call them, zombie corporations. Sorry, go ahead. Well, imagine the Fed could have done simply bought all the student debt uh, from the government <coughs> and then uh, uh, wiped it out. The Fed could have wiped it out. Uh, the fact is, if the government were to write down all the student debt, it wouldn't cost the government a penny right now. And, that, and it wouldn't cost the banks a penny because the debt's owed to the government. And the government would simply be uh, canceling a future source of revenue. And by canceling the student debt revenue, they'd say debt is a public need. Debt is a, uh, it, it's a, what people need uh, to get by it. It's a basic need. And so uh, it deserves to be public as it is in uh, England, China, and most other developed countries. Only in the United States do you have uh, education taking off uh, at a rate that almost is uh, approaching the inequity of healthcare uh, and medical care here. Uh, that's what makes America so different from every other industrial country uh, and from China. And because of this uh, heavy debt, uh, and uh, healthcare and all the other expenses that other economies don't have. That's exactly why the United States isn't able to pull out of uh, uh, the uh, recession that we've been in uh, for the last 13 years since 2008. Uh, when you say expenses they don't have, individuals don't have, it's, they're dealt with collectively, the healthcare and education. Yeah, yeah I don't think there's an advanced uh, capitalist country, industrialized country, in the world that doesn't have more or less free higher education. Uh, although I have to say that tuition rates in Canada have been going up uh, with some ser seriousness, not, not nearly at American levels. And, there, and the student debt exists in Canada too, but again, not as bad as in the US. That, that's right. Canada's always uh, uh, about three years behind the United States. Uh, <laughs> that's the perception of Canada. Uh, when I worked with the State Department in Canada, uh, in 1979, we did a, uh, uh, a test questionnaires on Can Canadians. What do you think of the future? And almost all Canadians thought their future was going to be uh, uh, what the United States had, but three years behind. And uh, Canada, that's become the basic administrative policy of prime ministers ever since. So that, let's dig into the, what, the, what you just talked about, because the rationale for all this buying of both corporate bonds from the apples of this world and now junk bonds, uh, essentially, 
uh, from companies that really can't afford to pay their debts, is that this is systemically necessary because of the pandemic, because of the deeper recession. It acts as a stimulus. It stops a, a greater uh, unraveling of the economy and so on. But all of that rationale would exist for student debt exactly the same way, and, and even more because it would give so much stimulus on the consumer side. I mean, as I say, some of these companies that are they're buying their debt from, they don't even, they're actually cash rich like an Apple. They, they have debt for convenience. Uh, but the stimulus, the far more stimulus would have come from relieving systemic debt. But the reason I think they don't do it, and this is what I'm asking you, is because they don't want people to have any notion that debt gets relieved by the government. They want people to consider debt must always be paid. I think there's a simpler explanation. Uh, one person's debt is somebody else's assets. The government can cancel debts uh, because it's the creditor, uh, ultimately, of student loans. So it can cancel debts, and nobody's going to complain because nobody loses any money. And the government can make up uh, what it, it doesn't get in student debt uh, uh, interest and in principal by uh, taxing uh, or by simply printing the money. Uh, but if you cancel corporate debt, then you're going to hurt bondholders. If you cancel business debt, you're going to hold uh, someone. If you cancel mortgage debt or landlord debt, right now uh, there's been a huge uh, increase in backlog of uh, mortgage debt because uh, many, uh, not only uh, homeowners uh, have lost their job, but also the landlords are land renting out the uh, uh, renters who are not paying. And uh, if they don't pay, then the banks will lose. So the economy, uh, the Federal Reserve's job is to make sure that the economy is run for the banking system and for the bondholders, not uh, the banking system and bond markets run for the economy. So we're living in an upside down economy where everything is being run in order to uh, sustain uh, the, the bondholders and the banks. And the problem with this is that the debts, uh, the mortgage debts, the student loan debts, the personal debts, the car loan debts, they're growing at an exponentially high rate while the economy is not growing at a high rate. Uh, all of the economy's growth since 2008 has been uh, uh, only for the top 5% of the population. For 95% of the population since 2008, the, the GDP has actually shrunk. Uh, and uh, so uh, you're, you're having a very sharp polarization right now. So I think if you're talking about the debt issue, uh, the question is, do you want to sustain this polarization between creditors at the top and the indebted uh, 95%? Or do you want to uh, uh, restore the kind of uh, equality that people think usually is a hallmark of uh, democracy, at least uh, of economic democracy? Uh, and uh, the choice by the government is we're going to sustain the polarization uh, no matter what the creditors won't lose a penny uh, the debtors will lose. Okay, so so why why do you why do you think Biden and and not just Biden but you know that section of finance that they represent, why don't they want to uh, forgive student debt? I think uh, partly it's what you said. It's the whole idea that if you admit that uh, uh, you should write down debts when uh, the effect is to help the economy grow, and you write down debts that impair economic growth, then people would put economic growth 
over the welfare of creditors. And that's revolution. That's not what our economy is all about. Uh, we're, we put creditors first, not the economy. And the very thought of putting the welfare of the people first over the over the, the creditors in general is, uh, they say, well, that's, that's totalitarianism. That's uh, a dictatorship. We can't possibly have that. So it's the greed of the creditors and the fact that the creditors are able to uh, control politics uh, and who gets nominated, who, uh, uh, et cetera, uh, is, enables them to prevent anything that might uh, shock uh, uh, the, the assumption that uh, the, the sanctity of property is really the sanctity of debtor, of creditors to evict uh, property owners if they can't pay. Uh, it's really the sanctity of debt and if you talk about the sanctity of debt, it's the sanctity of the exponential growth of debt, even when it's beyond the ability to pay, even when it pushes the economy into a chronic uh, depression. And in fact, what we're suffering now is debt deflation. And the debt deflation at the bottom that uh, students are experiencing, uh, unemployed in, are experiencing, cities and states are experiencing it. Uh, they can't afford to pay. The, uh, uh, the transportation system uh, are running at, at deficits. All of this, these deficits are uh, the, the savings and the gains and the wealth of the 1% or 5% or whatever you want to call the banking and creditor class. Yeah, I saw a stat from Brookings Institute. Now, this is a few years old, uh, maybe five, six years old. But the amount of uh, assets in private hands after liabilities in the United States was at that point something like $98 trillion. It's not like there isn't enough wealth. Uh, there's no reason why people have to be in such debt. It's just, it's as you say, it's the polarization. Uh, talk a little bit about this issue of debt relief, because you've done a lot of work on the history of debt and debt relief. Well, the interesting thing is that people assume that the economy is going to crash if people don't pay the debts. Uh, but I've, uh, as uh, we've discussed before, uh, I've headed uh, an ar archaeological uh, anthropology group at uh, Harvard uh, since 1984, uh, where we've gone into the economic history of Mesopotamia. And for 3,000 years, Sumer, Babylonia, all uh, Near Eastern kingdoms and their rulers, normally when they would take the throne, they would cancel the personal debts, not the business debts, not the debts of merchants and traders, but the personal debts. And they did it uh, because otherwise you would have the, uh, the debtors falling into uh, bondage to the creditors. And that meant uh, if you were a smallholder uh, supporting yourself on the land, well, you'd uh, be behind in your taxes uh, or your, you'd need uh, uh, to borrow for some reason. And you would have to work off the debt by working for the creditor. Well, then you couldn't work on the corvée labor to build the walls and the, dig the uh, irrigation ditches and uh, the corvée labor, the public uh, infrastructure. And uh, if you couldn't, uh, uh, if you owed uh, the crop surplus to the creditor, then you couldn't pay the taxes. So the rulers uh, normally would simply, every new ruler who took the throne in the Near East for thousands of years uh, would simply have a clean slate. He'd say, okay, we're wiping out the backlog of of debts and, and Hammurabi's laws, one of uh, one of his uh, uh, clean slate proclamations said, well, if there's sickness or if there's a crop failure 
or if there's uh, some interruption in economic activity that people can't afford to pay, then the debts don't have to be paid. Well, the result was resilience. Uh, the result was not an economic collapse. Uh, and uh, this seems so radical that for uh, almost a century, uh, Assyriologists and uh, economic historians said, well, they couldn't possibly have canceled the debts because if they did, the economy would collapse. Well, the fact is the economy didn't collapse because they canceled the debts. Uh, once you wipe out the debts to the, the creditor class, you prevent an independent financial oligarchy from developing. Uh, you uh, enable the smallholders to uh, pay their uh, the crops to the uh, palace as they did before, and uh, they're on their working on their own land. They're able to uh, do their corvée duties, uh, the work duties that they did in the uh, uh, off season uh, from the planning. And so uh, these clean slates would not only cancel the debts; they would give back the property that had been forfeited to the uh, creditors, and they would free the uh, debtor from bondage that is owing the labor. Uh, to the creditor. And in fact, this was uh, word for word borrowed by uh, the Jubilee Law uh, of Judaism, uh, Leviticus uh, 25. So uh, even uh, it, it was actually built in uh, to, uh, to religion. But by the time uh, uh, Jesus appeared uh, and said he'd come to restore uh, the clean slate, uh, in his first uh, uh, sermon, uh, you had uh, the Roman oligarchy taking over. And Rome uh, rewrote the whole law and completely changed the course of, of civilization, certainly of Western civilization, uh, and said all the debts have to be paid. Uh, there are not going to be uh, any uh, debt cancellations. Uh, we're not in a democracy. Well, for five centuries, from about the sixth century BC in Greece uh, down to uh, uh, the end of the uh, Republic with uh, Augustus uh, in Rome, uh, you had uh, what you had revolts uh, at urging a debt cancellation and a land redistribution. Uh, there were constant revolts in, in Rome, the secessions of the pled. The, uh, uh, there was civil war. There was civil war in Greece. Uh, and that's what democracy in Greece began with uh, uh, leaders called the tyrants who were reformers who uh, kicked out the oligarchy and uh, canceled the debts and redistributed the land. Well, that hasn't that stopped being done. And the result was a dark age. So you have uh, Western civilization ever since Rome having a stop, go, stop, go. Uh, you'll have the debts build up, it'll lead to a crash, to austerity, and, to, and the whole world now is uh, being subjected to what the International Monetary Fund subjected third world countries to. Um, if you want to see where uh, the U.S. economy is going, look at what happened to Greece when the International Monetary Fund uh, and uh, Obama personally and uh, Tim Geithner, as Treasury Secretary, uh, told Europe, you have to, you can't forgive Greece Greeks' debts because the American banks have uh, written insurance contract, debt default contract on these, and we'd lose money. So to save my constituency, the banks from losing money, you have to create a permanent depression in uh, Greece. Well, that principle of Obama is exactly the principle that Biden is, fo is following today. He, Biden says it's worth, and the Democratic Party and the Republicans say it is worth plunging America into depression. It's worth impoverishing it just so the upper 1% of creditors in the banks will not lose. And uh, it, 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 it's 
why the economy is polarizing, not converging. Uh, wasn't it just my memory is it wasn't that long ago there was a bill that would allow uh, students to declare bankruptcy and avoid student debt. And that and then they, they wouldn't do it. Right. They exempted student debt from that. Uh, no, it was Biden who rewrote the, uh, uh, the head of the committee that uh, rewrote the bankruptcy law to prevent student debt from being a written law. Uh, it was Biden who locked in student debt. I, you'd think that maybe he has it. He would say, here's a chance to undo the great error that I did. Uh, grinding down student debts. Uh, his uh, Basically, uh, if he would have vocalized what he said, he would have said, I'm going to make students so poor that uh, uh, that they have to pay student debts so high that they can't afford to buy a home. They can't afford to get a mortgage because they already owe the student debt. They can't afford to start a family. They can't afford to get marriage. Uh, that's my policy. And that was the democratic policy and the uh, uh, it was a, a bipartisan policy, of course, uh, but Biden played the lead role in uh, in, in this uh, awful uh, bankruptcy law. And uh, bankruptcy was supposed to be the one way of uh, the uh, Western civilization's alternative to a clean slate. Uh, uh, they, they're not going to wipe out all the debts as they did in the ancient Near East, but they wiped it out on a case-by-case -case basis. But uh, thanks to Biden, uh, he said, well, uh, you can't uh, wipe out debt, student debt. We're not going to let you do that. We're going to tighten the rules so that uh, it's very hard for uh, for individuals uh, to declare bankruptcy. Only the, our constituency, the, uh, the banks and the corporations are allowed to write down their debts, as you point out, which is why Obama was willing to bail out uh, uh, General Motors and the car companies but not uh, the debtors uh, who were subject to the junk mortgages and the uh, all the bank fraud uh, that you had Bill Black explain on your uh, program. Well, I was just about to say what Bill Black's point is that it's the bankers, not the banks. The bankers loot their own banks as well as looting their customers and society. Um, and when it comes to bankruptcy, the way the law works, uh, the, the management of these companies who have been paid bonuses and, you know, millions of dollars in, in salary, if the company goes down the toilet, they don't lose any of their personal wealth. It's all been separated through the bankruptcy laws and, and incorporation laws. So those individuals walk away, you know, they may lose some stock or whatever, but they usually walk away rich. Uh, whereas when it comes to student debt and individual family debt, there's no such real, no such mechanism. I mean, you can go bankrupt, but you lose everything you've got. You don't, you don't just walk away scot-free from your company. And the amazing thing is that nobody is suggesting any alternative. Nobody is pointing to, to debt uh, really as a problem. Uh, it, it certainly, if you take an economics course, it doesn't appear in the economics courses, and it doesn't appear in the political discussion. Uh, you don't have anyone, uh, sort of a counterpart to Bernie Sanders talking about uh, 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 socialized medicine, uh, you don't have anyone talking about socialization of debt uh, or writing down the debt or the fact that uh, it's debt that is uh, grinding uh, our economic growth to a halt. And also because people have to spend so much money on debt, they're not, not only are they not able to buy the goods and services they produce, but they're not able to get jobs exporting because their cost of living is so high because they have to pay very so much debt. Why in the United States, as compared to the other industrialized countries, 
Has the cost of higher education so been put on the shoulders of students? I mean, there's Nordic countries in Europe. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly. I think Norway's one, but there's a few others. Not only do they provide free uh, education at the highest levels, they'll even give it to anyone from around the world who goes there, they'll give them free education. I, I believe in Germany, foreign students even get a stipend uh, to go to go to school. Uh, it, why did it develop so uh, differently in the U.S.? Well, think of education as being like uh, buying a house. Uh, if you buy a house, uh, it, the price is however much a bank is going to lend you to buy a house. And the banks have loosened their mortgage terms and they've lent more and more debt to uh, value ratio. Same thing in education. Once you uh, privatize the educational system and once uh, you, you uh, make uh, provide a market for banks to finance it, banks are going to compete to lend more and more money to students and uh, students will, will all take it on. And uh, the student debt initially created a huge market for the banks uh, that uh, would uh, essentially appear on every campus and uh, uh, they would lend more and more for the education. And so obviously universities uh, uh, thought this this is wonderful. If the banks will lend our students more, we'll make more and more money. And so the the schools turned into profit centers. Uh, New York University is a profit center. Columbia University, a profit center uh, here in New York. Uh, and uh, uh, you can just look at the huge rise of endowments in Harvard, Yale, uh, all over the country. Uh, that uh, uh, now uh, schools are. Uh, uh, run as if they're for profit, quite apart from the actual for-profit colleges, which are don't really provide education. They are only markets for uh, banks to make uh, uh, debt or for the government to make loans to students that go directly to the universities, regardless of uh, their, uh, what they do. So it's the privatization of education. In America, we do not believe that education is a uh, human right or, or a social right. Education, uh, uh, you, you can, uh, everybody's free to get whatever education they can pay for. You, you're, they're free to get whatever medical care they can pay for. Uh, other countries say, wait a minute, you don't have to pay for uh, human rights. But uh, America has turned everything into a commodity. Education is a commodity to be bought and sold. Uh, healthcare is a, a commodity. It's all been not only privatized, but it's been financialized. Uh, and this is presented as capitalism, but it's it's finance capitalism. It's not industrial capitalism, which is why Norway and England and uh, Germany are capitalist countries, but they haven't financialized uh, human needs and basic uh, uh, rights to the extent that uh, the United States. Well, I think that's the key word to the extent, because they're certainly on the way there. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's the that's the trend uh, in the West, and uh, uh, it's it, pulling the whole Western world into uh, a whole uh, debt pyramid. Hmm. Uh, so if, 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 can you have the kind of debt relief you're talking about? Uh, wipe out student debt um, to start with. That seems to have more support than other kinds of debt. Um, but can you have this kind of modern capitalism? without this kind of debt? Isn't it kind of inherent in, in financialization that they actually need large 
people, you know, large sections of the population in debt, and not only in the U.S. I mean, household debt is pretty high in most uh, most industrialized countries. Well, it's inherent in financialization, but not in capitalism. Uh, the German economic miracle of uh, 1947 night was based on a debt cancellation. All domestic debts were canceled except for uh, the debts that employers owed their employees, you know, for the uh, for the monthly payment, and except for a minimum uh, a bank accounts. And in Germany, they wrote down the debts, and the result is it, this made Germany a debt-free economy and uh, was able to take off and uh, become the uh, uh, Europe's dominant industrial power as it was today. So, of course, uh, you could have under capitalism uh, a debt write-down just as you had uh, in uh, ancient Babylonia, uh, uh, a debt write down, and uh, uh, you had a thriving economy. And, and, uh, and if you don't write down the debts, you're not going to have an economy of any form. You're going to have austerity, and you're going to have, uh, in Rome's case, a dark age. But, is, but isn't financialization, you know, you had a lot of financialization, financialization in the 1920s, you had the big crash in the 30s, depression, but right after World War II, financialization takes place, you know, throughout the capitalist world, and it takes off like a rocket in the 1980s. Uh, but 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 isn't but that ha, that horse has left the barn, hasn't it? I don't I don't think you go back to a capitalized capitalism that's not financialized, in the sense I, I think it's inevitable with modern capitalism. That certainly is a trend now. But if you do not uh, definancialize the economy. Then you're going to have uh, the economic growth uh, concentrated in countries that are not financialized, such as China, where finance is a public utility. The real in, in key to make capitalism effective would be to keep money and bank and the credit and debt system as a public utility. China can afford to write down the debts, and it doesn't have a constituency to lose because the debts ultimately are owed to the People's Bank of China, the central bank or the Bank of China. Uh, and uh, capitalism can only succeed, certainly industrial capitalism can only succeed if you don't have finance crowding out industry. If you don't have finance just uh, absorbing the whole economy and uh, making it uh, really uh, into an economy like ancient Rome. And of course, the irony of that banking as a public utility and the finance sector's opposition to that is they can't exist without government subsidy and bailouts and all the rest. It, it, it actually, it kind of is a public utility, except for the people that own the banks. It's an unregulated public utility because, again, as Bill Black has explained, there's been regulatory capture. Uh, uh, the, the problem in the United States was the creation of the Federal Reserve by banks. It was created, the Federal Reserve was created uh, 1913 to move to make banking a private uh, uh, enterprise, not a public utility, and to take uh, very explicitly to shift the center of money creation and credit and credit rules away from Washington towards Wall Street uh, and Philadelphia and Boston, uh, and to decentralize it to get the government out of the credit and debt system and let the creditors run wild over the economy. That was what they said. Uh, the result was they even removed the, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury from membership on the Federal Reserve Board at that time. Uh, it, this was a, a new class war, and it wasn't the kind of class war that Marx warned about. It was a class war of finance uh, against the rest of the economy. It was a, a resurgence of the rentier economy, uh, except 
uh, the rentiers in the 20th century and the 21st century are the creditors and the bankers and the financial institutions, uh, not the landlords. Well, so we'll have to see if there's a, a people's movement that can make this demand of banking as a public utility, because it seems to me, amongst other things, it's, it's hard to imagine a climate change policy that's going to actually be effective without weakening the uh, power of the finance sector. Well, right now, I don't see how you can have a meaningful uh, uh, climate change policy if uh, the largest uh, market for banks are the oil industry and the mining industry. Uh, and uh, they intend to keep it that way. Uh, you have the interest of the banks and the financial sector diametrically opposed to doing anything about uh, global warming or about uh, any kind of social or environmental reform. That's why, uh, when uh, again, when President Obama was pushing for the TPP, the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and the TTIP uh, with Europe, uh, he had an uh, element of that was the private courts. The government lost any authority to uh, enforce environmental rules against any foreign investor. Uh, and so the whole uh, world would have turned out to be Chevron versus Ecuador. Uh, uh, any government that would in, impose uh, an environmental rule about pollution or global warming could be sued for damages so that the company would have made as much money as it would have made if it would have continued to pollute and destroy the environment. That was uh, Obama's uh, great uh, thrust, hoping uh, to finally uh, drive a nail into American democracy. And that was largely why he was voted out, because people were so appalled uh, at the hypocrisy and the, uh, I won't use adjectives, but uh, the support of corporations against government, against civilization. That was what the TPP and the TTIP were. All right. Well, well, this is just the beginning of a conversation, Michael. Uh, uh, thank you. And also for people that want to see more of Bill Black, Michael's mentioned him a couple of times. Uh, I've just started publishing a series of interviews with Bill on the history of American financial fraud, starting with the SNL crisis in the 80s. And we're taking it up to today because uh, the... Uh, Can I say one thing? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, I was... Uh, 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 hosting uh, when uh, Ralph Nader wrote a study of Citibank. Uh, the group all met in my backyard in uh, New York. Uh, and the lawyers uh, working on fraud uh, got very disappointed uh, in what uh, Nader was doing at that time with Citibank because they all realized the problem wasn't, wasn't at that time fraud. Uh, it was that it was all legal. So uh, the, the worst thing about the financial system is it's legal, it's not fraud. In other words, when the banks do it, it's not fraud, to paraphrase Richard Nixon. Uh, now, obviously, uh, Ralph Nader subsequently has moved toward more reform. Uh, and meanwhile, real fraud uh, has taken uh, place because of the regulatory capture. Uh, but the real problem is the structuring of the financial system itself. Quite without, even without fraud, the system is headed towards uh, economic polarization, austerity, and disaster. Thanks very much, Michael. Good to be here. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button and all of that. And uh, we'll see you again soon.